Hello, I'm Harry Doncaster and this is the Forgotten Book Podcast. In each episode, I will be speaking with a creative to learn more about their process and how fashion or fashion history has affected their creations. I hope you enjoy listening. Due to the current climate, this and our foreseeable episodes will be conducted via a phone call rather than in person. We're sorry if the audio quality is impacted. In this episode, we're speaking with the inspiring James Webster, a distinctive artist known for his sculptural series trophies and martyrs. We'll be discussing how his career began, tutelage in Florence, the purpose behind his work, how he grew within the modern creative landscape, his relationship with the fashion industry and how its system impacted his process. Let's jump in. Well, James, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Forgotten Book Podcast. Um, It would be nice to start at the beginning. James, you grew up in Suffolk to, you once said, a sort of family where I should have been rugby playing accountant. Was art and creating not always part of your life? Um, I think think the rugby playing and the accountancy was more an ex not an expectation but more of a hope of building a life that reflected my parents i think your parents build themselves or from my experience of having two parents together at that moment was that they wanted you or they imagined that you want want to build something that protected you and kept you safe in the way that they did in their own image and the pleasures that they found in their life would be something that you would reflect in yours, which I think is a normal thing. That said, I was bucking trends, but there was definitely art in the family. My uncle had absconded the family and the country and gone off to live in uh, Hollywood and produce films, mainly horror films like Hellraiser and things like that. So he was doing his own creative, artistic, non-conventional pursuit. So there was an experience of it, definitely. And on my mother's side, There was a lot of painters and people who, a kind of more uh, elegant way of spending your time, mostly women, of creating paintings and landscapes, which the house was tended to be covered in great grandma's sunflowers or great aunt's daffodils, that kind of thing, in watercolours. So the art was around, definitely, and it was definitely precious and, and kept close. So do you feel like you inherited it from your mother's side of the family? I think a bit of both, because the uncle who sconded and went away, he was on my father's side, and then my mother's side was like I described. I still think my journey is very specific to what I found my abilities and my successes in a kind of tough schooling. It would be remiss to me to say that I I think it was just within, how do I put it? It was just always part of you? It was part of me. It was part of me, and it was around, and it was an option. I think that's that's more more or less what it was. And then the option became a necessity, definitely at school, to be able to create and to to um, succeed as well. Ah, um, and you mentioned painting. Is that something that you pursued when you were younger because it was something that was surrounded, surrounded uh, your childhood? I, I drew endless sketchbooks and little models. And, and play, I think, is really important. And working with, I work with a guy at the moment who's assisting me on um, on mold making. He's called James Clements, and his work is really based in pop culture and references of 
of a past. So he's in his early 40s and he's he's drawing from He-Man figures and Star Wars figures and that notion of play and collection and fantasy and then acting it out with dolls and living in the countryside is a big part of that. So you have space to play and, and your mind can go off on one. That pre, pre-digital age in a way. So that's kind of precious. Yeah, definitely. And it's something I guess we can't we, or we rarely interact with now on a day to day basis. These cool yeah. tangible things aren't something that exist kind of in our lives as much anymore. Yeah, and there are a lot. Well, it's, it's still an option, but there are many other options as well. And I think, I mean, I, I was definitely encouraged. We were never allowed to watch TV without having something to do or do something. So it was either a sketchbook on my lap or, or we sewed a lot, did things like that. My mum was really really strong on there was technologies like tv and computers were never to be done without doing something else there had to be a balance and that was inherent from the very beginning so that was it kind of ingrained in me and even now tv i watch it while doing things Uh, i think one of your questions had uh, what do i do in my studio and i there's music and radio and and i watch box sets and all sorts of things is going on at the same time while i'm working that's something that's come from really early years that's really interesting i think it really differs from how a lot of people work nowadays kind of always having kind of entertainment or distraction constantly at hand is is really interesting that you use it as a way to do something on the side that is the added extra rather than the other way around yeah and it helps concentration i think i've taught myself for it not to be the only thing in the room and there's a point where you have to be careful because if you miss like three episodes of something while it's been playing in the background because you've been focusing so hard on your work it's better than obviously you lose where you are in your work because you're concentrating too hard on what else is in the room and it's a balance i mean it's easy to go one way or another that's interesting and with that idea of distraction do you allow other people or friends or family into your studio whilst you're working or do you keep that very separate as well i moved i moved out of london yeah it's 10 years ago now and that's that put me in a position where I was really isolated. Our, our nearest village is about two miles away, and I built the studio out of an old stable in the garden. And that that meant that I became very isolated very quickly. And, it, and after an equal amount of time working in London, I was really full emotionally, culturally. Everything that I'd experienced in London meant I was really full. And that meant... When I came here, it was really nice to process it. But now I've started to rent a studio space in the local town in an old conservative club with other artists. And that's been really interesting. And it's really natural. There's enough space in my head to have people with me. And I don't think it was necessarily wholly conscious to be isolated, but it it meant I was able to deal with it because I had such an agenda to be here and create a career for myself doing this. And so to now be out of here and working in a studio where there is space in my head and actually think about coming back to London. I think that's a testimony to how I've processed so many years and created a rhythm for myself that I can now continue to experience life alongside rather than from, if you see what I mean. So I guess that lu- that luxury of escaping London and kind of creating your own space that inhabits everything that you want it to be is is a great thing. But it's nice that you found like a community of people to surround yourself with as well. That's 
That's really interesting. Yeah, it's been good. And a choir or to be able to find an assistant up here and other artists are really sort of that are based in the area at every level of Korea. And that's really, that's been really interesting. Mm. You eventually decided that higher education wasn't for you and you landed on your feet in Florence um, studying sculpture under the eye of Mariana Lucetti. Can you tell us a little bit about this time in your life? The whole process, I mean, I, I did go through various stages of higher education. I deferred entry and found Mariana initially from school because I'd, I'd kind of had enough of all that and basically worked and then went out to Florence. The British school found her. She was a, she is a, an artist from the, from the sort of 60s, 70s, working under Philip Pelstein at the Met. And she was of Italian descent and came over to Florence in, I think it was 86 after the floods and set up her own shop and found a humility that she was unable to find in the minimalism of Pearlstein and the, the New York lifestyle. Being Italian, she had that humanity about her that was unresearched, unexplored by then. And when she started to restore and work on painting, she knew that's when or how she could become an artist. So she set up a studio near Santa Spirito on the other side of the river from the city. I found her and started to basically do one-on-one tuition with her. And she she taught directly from Leonardo's traditional painting, the book that he wrote on how to be an artist, mm. working from life. We were out and about a lot. We speed drew. We basically absorbed from our environment. She was less dictatorial on, on how to draw. It was about when and to draw was her direction and the faster the more subconscious the better very much like how obviously leonardo had created hundreds of sketches of people ladies playing with cats people walking that kind of thing that sort of acquiring of people and movement and buildings and water and nature and it was really addictive and really amazing it opened my mind to so much having been at school and been taken through various processes which were far more conservative. I went to a private all-boys school and that was really, uh, it had its own agenda. It was, it had its time in the 90s and it was taught a lot by artists from the 80s or abstract expressionists from, from the 70s. So you had a lot of freedom without any direction. So going to Florence she gave me a a direction that was really really powerful and really akin to some of the work that I was really into which was really Michelangelo at that point was a massive draw for me so this was a a fantasy experience it was incredible and it went on for about six years on and off with me I did a bit of a degree got kicked out did another bit of a degree but all all the while working in Pizza Express at that time and going out and visiting her for about two or three months and then coming back again so it was a a long journey and really exciting she was really formal it was a very elegant respectful relationship our lives never overlapped we only worked and she would give me her studio for days just drawing sculptures that she'd made or plaster cars she had in her little studio but I would walk her home but never to her door never be invited in it was a very very formal relationship and one day she turned around and went we're over we've done 
I've taught you everything I know. You're welcome to come and visit me. We will, we could do excursions together, which we did a few. But it was done by the time I was 24, I think. That's amazing. What an interesting and kind of unique way to learn. And I think what's so interesting about that is it wasn't just three years, three summers in between that and kind of that regimented degree or art experience that so many people have. It seems like you really kind of grew up and learned with her. Yeah, definitely. And and, and that one-on-one experience was just incredible, really valuable when art was kind of still with the YBA and everything. Art was really popular at the time that I was going or thinking about university and being in that environment. People were really, it was a really positive thing. You wanted to be part of it, but the, the sense of money-making and, and the aggressive nature of it with Freud and his paintings at that time as well, which was something that was really influencing me, which Mariana instantly disliked. She she loved she loved Renaissance art. That was that was her thing. And Donatello was really part of that. That soft sensitivity, that delicate, respectful way that he knew his work would be looked at. Yeah, it was good. It's so fascinating. And do you, you think it still impacts how you work today? Definitely. Yes. Even though my subject matter is definitely things that she would dislike entirely the work on the um, love tokens that I've been doing recently, which focuses on sex and sexuality and the emotion of it, tackling objects which are explicit, but by working them, I wanted to create a notion of love and intimacy that could be translated through something so explicit, if you see what I mean. It did take me back to create something that is respectful something that is taking eroticism and and sexuality into a realm of respect and privacy and intimacy with the work that i'm doing i think she would be really uncomfortable with the subject matter but the intentions are effectively in my head the the same so Mm, um, wonderful so how would you describe your visual world or aesthetic or does it need no description do you feel like your work is kind of the description itself I think I've learned so much by doing this now. And I've learned a lot from the actual act of making objects and having exhibitions and being at that stage in my life and coming to it late. Always wanted to make things, always considering this would be my career. But being 34, 33, when I really started it, meant that the journey... The actual understanding of what the object is as what kind of animal it is once it's it's made and seen and born, if you like, is an education in itself. So from making skulls on plinths from porcelain and concrete through the research of Greek herma and then working now in, into a smaller scale of intimacy and sexuality, but working in the same materials is is a kind of it's an evolution it's such a it's so evolving that it's difficult to nail it for me as a maker as an artist sculptor there's so much evolution it's it's really difficult to know how to pin it down but i think the evidence is in what it becomes in exhibition in seeing i think no definitely and i think your work can really tell that that story and you seem to have reoccurring influences of the past and death and art history, as you mentioned, Michelangelo is a big inspiration or big influence for you um, on your work. What connects you to these these ideas, these reoccurring themes? 
I was thinking about it after the direction in, in your, your questions and, and as understanding, I was really thinking about what my purposes are because you're asking me why in a big way. And I think it's really difficult to find a reason why. There are so many amazing artists at the moment. There are so many incredibly talented people. So understanding the reason why you sit down and make another object in this world, another thing to be consumed, another thing that needs energy and time and effort, and then to exist beyond the person who makes it for the sake of it is a really, it's such a big question, especially with the notion of the planet and ecology and our pursuit of, of what we make and why we make it. Even today, you and I talking because of the coronavirus and knowing how little the creative industry is valued at this moment in, as opposed to the practical side of life, the food, the care, hospitals, all that kind of thing. Just knowing that your bins are going to be taken away, everything is in question mm -hmm. today. So to sit down in my studio and make another clay sculpture is a really, it's to really get your head around why you do what you do. And I know I've deviated way, way from your <laughs> question. But then I thought a lot about Michelangelo was a big in, influence in me. And I, and, I, and I really understood that still, although he was Michelangelo and this ethereal, incredible figure of, uh, as an artist, he still had the purpose of making an object that had a purpose. It was still religious based. And the Herma that I made were made from with that notion of a Greek offertory sculpture that would be set, found at most crossroads in ancient Greece at a certain time, a very practical, which had four sides. So it was the number of the God, it had the head of the God, and then it had the genitals of the God, because that's all you need in that object to do the job that it was there to do. Mm -hmm. Almost as much as the David is there to do the job of inspire awe and compassion and patronage and association and all the th other things faithful and religious that it, it was there for. So the themes that come into my work are really themes that create a relationship between myself and hopefully my, my audience, the people who are able to see it through exhibition and show, and create that relationship, that value in an object that is inspiring but fits into a life, into a, a consciousness of why we have these things in existence it's great that you pick up the kind of the fact that corona is a reason why we're able to speak right now and the fact that everyone being in isolation gives everyone so much time to kind of reflect on what's happening within their own personal environment and also the fact that you bring up the art is kind of secondary right now um, because we need to focus on our day-to-day -day activities. But I think what's so interesting and fascinating is that during these periods where art is secondary or even something that nobody thinks about is the times where amazing and really influential art is created because people can respond to it and kind of emote with it in such different ways. But I think one of the interesting things that you've mentioned frequently and kind of keep referring to in a way is this idea of purpose. Do you feel like you're creating work that has to have a purpose or do you feel like the idea of creation and the way you make something gives that object purpose itself? The incentive is to make the new thing that maybe the subject or the, the reasoning for me approaching a new thing has no lesser sense of purpose as to the thing that eventually comes out. Sculpture, unlike painting, takes up space. Mm-hmm. 
I went for a period of time in my education, I went to the Sainsbury Centre and did history of art in the UEA. And Lord Sainsbury created that collection in that Norman Foster building through his sense of relationship with an object. And a lot of the objects are small because he would have them in his pocket for a period of time. Mm. And, And my studio is filled with objects and bits of stone and things that you find that are tactile that can be held or revolve between your finger and your thumb or in your full hands or even picked up in your arm there's a notion of physical relationship to an object which i think is really interesting and once you start making something that physical relationship becomes part of your reasoning for its size its material and what you can do with it i was thinking a lot about how especially with coronavirus that immediately you can't go and see an exhibition and immediately you can't group together and go and see something in a space a shared space or a public space so my work now some of the pieces that i was doing i was making the love tokens but i was making mini versions of them that you could have in your pocket and one of the sources of why i had the idea for the love tokens came from a net ski of a rabbit on a cloud which you could break open and inside were two people fucking basically but a close-up of the torsos of their bodies as one so you could see the penetration it was a very sexual little immaculately carved man and a woman inside this net ski Mm. and it would be given to somebody's lover obviously as something hey this is this is what we shared or this is what we're gonna do or it was about love and that immediately prompted me to take that notion and make it into something intimate and respectful but then also erotic i've now started to do very like thinking about small objects things that can be owned more than seen in a public space Mm. that idea of of not being able to share space immediately informs the objects that i'm thinking about yeah definitely and it is something tangible is so different in comparison to other mediums so it is always quite wonderful to kind of be able to experience something that you can hold and the smaller it is, the more you can touch it, I guess. Yeah, especially when you're working with the human figure, as I've slowly started to lean more to, mm-hmm. the notion of touch is, is really powerful with that. I wanted to talk a little bit about your trophies series. Um, it's credited yes. on your website as your earliest presentation back in 2014. You've obviously, as we've discussed, created pieces before then, um, as you had your first solo exhibition back in 2008. Do you consider trophies as the beginning of your artistic narrative? When I made work in London, I painted a lot. Mm. I made a lot of images from uh, photographs and then out of the newspaper, I took images and I made a lot of black and white oil on linen because it was possible, because it was possible to have in in a studio flat when I was working as a waiter in Nobu to have that opportunity to paint. That's why I worked in restaurant because it it made sense that I would have the day to paint and then I could work in the evening. Also in a a bed sit in in, uh, Old Street where I was, there was limited space and terracotta was never going to happen there. Hmm. Though I did make things and I did did make sculptures and those sculptures just never survived because the process of then taking them to a kiln usually meant they got broken and then the breaking meant that they never got finished. There was always that moment where it was more important to do it than it was to complete it. 
and that was one of the biggest challenges that I've had in this whole process is is taking something all the way through to the end and the end came when I met or one of the abilities that I had to do that was meeting uh, Jonathan Kugel who I work with in a club at about four o'clock in the morning in Montana's in Paris mm. and showing him an image of my work on a phone and him coming to London where he was working at Kanagi assisting within the gallery there and he said I want to start representing artists who are alive and also a fine art where he'd grown up and he's 10 years my junior but he he said let's let's do this let's start this and we did three three of my sculptures in a room in Roland's brand new shop in Mount Street it was the first time I had to go all the way through to the end of making a sculpture. I'd had exhibitions in London in painting, but sculpture I'd never gone all the way through to the end to choose the material I needed to rest the porcelain on, to understand the steel plate that the cube of concrete would sit in, that the animal's head would sit on top of, and this completion of this of material and of subject matter, and then to exhibit it, that was really the first time all those things had come together. And it was a powerful moment. And it was a beginning of a new way of thinking. And by selling something at that moment, it meant that I actually submit my resignation. And it meant that I could then begin work almost entirely into the sculpture and sell as I went along to sustain myself. That's amazing. And that's so really... that was a beginning. Yeah, that's, that's really wonderful. And it sounds like you were really involved in that exhibition and kind of really involved in presenting yourself for the first time, which is a really unique kind of opportunity to display your work. Yeah, is... yeah, because it made me finish it. So you've, you've exhibited your work there, for instance, um, at the famed Freeze Art Fair and other exhibitions. Are you always involved in that process or do you kind of often take a step back and allow someone else to curate your work? So far, I'm fully involved in that process the, the less that I was about to do was I was going to be opening in Galerie d'Ends in Paris oh. with another artist this gallery is run by a photographer called Satoshi and his wife they've had the gallery for about 10 years they had offered me an exhibition a collaboration with an artist who I really love and had found over the internet or over over Instagram a long time ago and had been following him and I put Jonathan onto him and then strangely his gallery contacted me last year and said that they would like to exhibit martyrs in their gallery mm. and also love tokens and curate it for themselves in their space and that was probably the less involved that I would have been in, a, in an exhibition. Yeah, that hasn't happened. <laughs> everything else, everything else has been. Yeah, I've been really involved. Uh, art fairs are a little strange. They live their own life. They are a different sense of show. But something like working in the Tommaso for Freeze, where they cleared out their entire gallery, gave me that opportunity. Is pretty amazing. That was pretty amazing. I'm kind of involved in all of it. Yeah. Which I love. Yeah, I can imagine. Were you present at the art fair watching kind of strangers and everyone look at your work? Yes. The relationship I've had with Jonathan is very it's intimate. It's, it's unlike a gallery artist relationship. Because I met him in a club, then left his job once we started to sell together mm. and has now bought his own bricks and mortar in Brussels and has Art Sablon. So we started together and therefore our opinions have been quite level. 
or equal in the process of creating our shows, who we collaborate with. Even when I haven't been involved in the show, I've kind of been with Jonathan in that process. It's, it's a different kind of relationship. It's been something that's really intimate. And, and also, in the very beginning, we, through Jonathan's connections with Kanagi, our first exhibitions beyond doing a pop-up for one night in Roland's shop was to then approach galleries during art fairs like Masterpiece, Freeze, Art Week, that kind of thing. And when the gallery would spend their 25 to 50 grand renting their booth, we would ask if we could look after their gallery for them for that week. So in the process of them shipping out and putting their best work into their booth, these individual galleries like Daniel Kraut, we would then inhabit the gallery and put on our own show of work that we could have an opening night of and a closing night for and we would be on the calendar for the art fair by proxy and we were almost like nomads hostage (laughs) (laughs) hanging around Mayfair but I mean it was insane and I was always really amazed by what we were able to achieve through that because it's so difficult to be seen in London and it can be really tough to have exhibitions and this way of inhabiting space during art fairs especially with a kind of fashion head on in the sense that you know the press are in town because that art fair is happening like any fashion week Mm -hmm. and art fairs and fashion weeks are really similar now you have the same old gang who rock up they spend their money they spend their time and then they go home so they're there for the conversation they're there for the viewing if you like so by repeatedly inhabiting that space like like you said eventually we became part of the art fairs and we became in the art fairs or we stayed out of the art fairs it didn't really matter we assimilated accordingly we were nomadic we were very flexible it was a really good beginning it's great that you mentioned fashion and fashion isn't something that you'd instantly reference uh, or a reference point for how your work is received, but you have a strong connection with the industry via your husband, Roland Murray. Does fashion or clothing impact how you work or your creative process at all? The bigger thing that I learned in the, in the very beginning was watching Roland and then people who are working in the same way, understanding how you set your work free and that was that that moment of meeting Jonathan and having that journey of having to complete something and then sell something and to allow it to live you have a like everybody makes something you have a relationship with it and then you say goodbye to it Mm -hmm. but you have to really love it in the process of making it to then you say goodbye to that thing and that is a really odd it's the last part of that process in the sense that you say a stranger comes and they exchange something for your work and it and it disappears it's a really odd moment and i think the fashion industry especially seeing roland's work where women have they go off and they wear the clothes in the way that they want to wear them whether it's his his idea or not it's how they will wear those clothes and those clothes will live their lives whether in the public eye or or in private that's what you get used to and I think understanding the people who interacted with my work and when you go to collectors houses and you see where they position your work or how they view your work it's so far beyond your own expectation or your own reasoning because it now becomes part of their story 
fashion really helped me understand how to let go of that, how to embrace it, how to understand that experience when you go back to your studio and you make something else. So yeah. do you kind of, the way you mentioned that you kind of learnt from fashion's seasonality or the fact that the industry turns out two collections a season, do you feel like you've kind of adapted that approach of work? You create an idea or a body of objects and then release them and then you begin again on a next collection of objects? In a, in a weird way that's happened. I love ceramic. Ceramic to me is something magical and porcelain was really... It was like being a metal worker and working in gold. Porcelain is is that that kind of thing. Mm. You take something and I make everything in the beginning in terracotta and then the process that I make of mold making and turning it into porcelain is is how it ends up as it is. Mm -hmm. But that notion of porcelain is really reminiscent of, uh, again, there was an uncle we used to go and visit in Cornwall who lived in this enormous house where he was born there and he died there eventually. But he was a single man who collected antiques, but he lived in this same enormous place. Mm. And he had the reminiscence because this house had been in his family for about eight, nine generations. So all the tea services and the plates and the cups and the saucers, all this sort of thing was still in existence in their various dilapidated or missing state. And that notion of porcelain as a collection, as a set, was really important. For me, porcelain is about a collection in the mm. long and the short of it. And so Martyrs is about quantity. The trophies became about quantity. It was about creating narratives that I can return to and especially with the uh, love tokens as well they're never-ending stories but they create collections because they they have strengths together terracotta army springs to mind now and ceramic is a group decision in my head and weirdly the fashion relationship kind of fits into that as one fashion editor said to me oh art's so slow she said it's just so <laughs> slow it takes so long to get to the show and <laughs> it was one of the more disillusioning things but i yeah on many a visit to saraband and the blue mountain school i realized slow fashion does actually exist as well so mm. there, there is a slower pace <laughs> roland at one point is doing eight collections a year it's it's insane but I'm not doing that. I'm not doing it that frequency. No, I, I wouldn't attempt to hope that you could do eight, eight collections a year. That's, that's a lot <laughs> of work. That's a lot of clay. Well, that's a fact. It's a factory. It's Weiwei. It's Damien Hurst. It's a different kind of rhythm. Mm -hmm. it's, it's anybody else, any artist who's ever had a factory, <laughs> you can start working at a rhythm. You'll have to make not. quite a big extension on your studio in Suffolk if we expect yes, that amount. a lot. Talking about studios, a sculptor's studio is often a romanticised idea. Can you tell us a little bit about your workspace? You've told us that you don't really distract yourselves with TV, but you'll listen to the radio or music. But what is what is the space itself like? How, how do you set it up? The space itself that I'm looking at at the moment is, it, it was a four-base stable that I deconstructed and then rebuilt as one big open space, but it still has the same frontage of a stable. It's a long rectangular room. There's one enormous kiln at one end and another smaller kiln. 
I really love Quaker houses, so I put up a rail of pegs all the way around this room, mm. and every single peg has some sort of whether practical or or found object attached to it, or piece of work that didn't quite work, or moulds that came out in a strange way that I can't bring myself to throw away. It's a kind of thought process. My mum always said that my bedroom was always, it showed my state of mind. And oh. I think a studio is no more or less the same thing, whether it's tidy or full of mess. It really is a relationship between how you're thinking and how you're making something. Ah. So how do you begin a new series? Is there like a process of emptying the studio and then refilling it or is it very organic? It's really, I think it's really organic. I think there's a point where I have to stop on one thing and that usually comes in the form of an exhibition. I will revisit subjects like trophies. I think I will revisit martyrs one day, but love tokens is what I'm concentrating on just for now. And then also starting to work with figures, people, but like I said, it really helps having exhibitions because they create full stops for you to then recap. Because so much of what I make, you make an object and then you have to work out how that object can then be transformed into another material. And then how that material can then be finished, mounted or completed with some sort of plinth. For me, it still works on those I'm hesitant on the word classical or traditional, but I like the idea of plinth and sculpture. I like that balance. I like that ceremony to earth and an object. And I think those things have to be worked out. And once that rhythm is understood and that process is refined, then it can continue. It's fascinating. But thank you so much for giving us an insight into both your process and your inspirations. Before we bring the episode to a close, I'll have to ask you the Forgotten Book podcast questions. So first up, what's your first fashion memory? It's got to be in sixth form, sitting with a girlfriend in her room, pulling Gucci when Tom Ford was in with Gucci, pulling those Gucci advertisements out of a Vogue magazine and sticking them on their wall. Nice. I think that was the first. Next up, are you forgetful? Yes. Yes, I'm highly justified with it in the sense that I am thinking about something else so hard. There are many doors in this in this property, and I go to locked doors endlessly, go back to get the key, come back to the same door and realise I've forgotten the key because I've started to think about something else. <laughs> I'm endlessly forgetful. And finally, what are you currently reading? I am reading a book by Mark Langthorne, the title, someone's spot, has completely gone out of my head. That's very frustrating. Well, it just, I think it's... Can I text it to you? You can, you can send it to me later, but it definitely proves that you are forgetful. I'm feeling really bad I don't have the name of the book in my head. I think it's because it changed from one title to another. Oh, yeah. great. Well, James, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the podcast. After recording this episode, James let me know that the book title was in fact, Little More. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and getting an insight into James's art and method. Subscribe to the Forgotten Book podcast for more and visit our Instagram at the Forgotten Book to discover our publication and other projects. Thank you for listening.